Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast the Second. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor Vivian Kelly. Hello, Tim. Our opinion and features editor Josie Tutty. Hello. And our advertising and comms reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. Plus, we'll be chatting to the team from Vice Australia about such topics as Facebook's algorithm changes. I will say straight up, we saw a dip. Why Vice decided to make the tricky shift to TV. People often ask us, why? Why TV? And whether allegations of harassment at Vice in the US had an impact here in Australia. But we're very focused on, on making sure we've got a great culture and a great, great workplace. But first, to the week's headlines. 10 launches 10 daily. The AANA updates its gender stereotype guidelines. Victoria Bitter's cricket sponsorship gamble pays off. And four months on, publishers reveal the impact of Facebook's algorithm changes. So first then, to 10 Daily, Viv, kick us off on this one. So 10 Daily is Network 10's publishing play, which finally launched this week. Uh, They'd first flagged it way back in 2016 at their upfronts, confirmed it again in 2017 at their upfronts. So it's felt a bit like to me they've been over-promising and under-delivering for a really long time. Now it's here. So they say they're going to be targeting 18 to 39-year-olds from memory. Uh, They want it to be the go-to source for all things news, entertainment, lifestyle, television. And I certainly get the sense that they're trying to win back some of that audience that's almost been poached from them. They have shows like The Bachelor, The Bachelor in Paradise and Bachelorette that get so much traction on social media. And then rival publishers such as Mamma Mia, BuzzFeed and Punky have managed to leverage that and create their listicles and recaps and almost steal Ten's own organic audience away from them. And I can't help but think they've suddenly realised, oh, we've we've missed out here and we want to get those people back. So do you think their 20-year delay in arriving at the publishing party will will be a head start they've given away that they can't get back? Well, they certainly did give it away. Nine is a rival television network and has been making a publishing play for quite some time. Ten has that audience that love those shows, go on social media, talk about it, actually still generate water cooler conversations, but they haven't done anything with it other than whack the episodes up online on 10 Play. And that's another interesting thing. How is 10 Play, which is their streaming and catch up service, going to feed into having another platform in the form of 10 Daily? You know, do you go and watch it on 10 Play and then are you expected to jump across? on 10 Daily to read the recap and read what's happening and then go to Mamma Mia and and read about the best and funniest tweets. I do wonder how authentic it will seem when it's 10 themselves talking about how great their show is. When you see it on Pedestrian, you kind of feel like you're part of a club watching it. You don't feel like it's 10 telling you, oh, look at this amazing thing. It's really great. I just feel like the message might not be as authentic when it's coming from 10 themselves. It needs a touch of snark. Yes, it? it does. And that's what was so fantastic about Rosie Waterland's recaps at Mamma Mia, she sort of really capitalised on that trend years ago. And that was authentic because it was her sitting in her lounge room with a glass of wine, being snarky, being funny and engaging in that actual conversation. If Ten tries to be sort of self-depreciating and funny about it, you're going to know that it's deliberate and it's commercial. 
So I think they will struggle with that, but it's not the only thing they're doing. You know, they've appointed lots of big names. They have Lisa Wilkinson and Sandra Sully. So who- as an executive editor, as ex- news editor, executive, they've all got executive Sandra Sully is managing news editor uh, and Lisa Wilkinson, I actually can't recall her personal I think it's wordy executive title. editor is the, 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 the title, I think. Um, but I think, the, see, my question about this is, are these honorary titles? All these people are on air talent, or are they genuinely turning up at five AM to do the early shift? Well, I asked Liz Baldwin, who's Ten's uh, head of digital, uh, this very question. You know, is it just an ornamental role? Look at all these people that we have, and you know how you could make an argument. How much did Lisa Wilkinson contribute to HuffPost when she had a title there? But I have been assured that they are, you know, on the ground running things, driving the news agenda, creating content. I guess, again, it's a, it's another time will tell thing, Tim, because we'll have to wait and see what they actually produce. I know that Sandra Sully and Lisa Wilkinson are very much pushing it on social media as their pet project, but it's going to be a, a big task to run a website and be on-air talent as well. Well, as you say, it's a competitive space and it will be months before we know for sure if 10 Daily has found a niche. Next, on to gender stereotypes. Abby. So this week, the Australian Association of National Advertisers, or the AANA, announced it would be updating its gender stereotypes guidelines. So the AANA already does have um, a code in place to deal with discrimination related to gender stereotypes. Um But the industry body announced it would be updating its code to detail the ways in which advertisers and the Ad Standards Board should use the code, as well as helping the industry better understand how the existing code operates with respect to gender stereotypes. The guide hasn't exactly explained how this is going to play out in practice and how this will affect rulings by the Ad Standards Board um, and their panels, but it has said that it will encourage advertisers to avoid depicting men and women in a way which would show people in an unfavourable manner due to their gender. So does it basically mean we'll stop seeing dopey husbands? Well, they've said that they won't be eliminating all stereotypes. So it has said, (laughs) so it has said that there will be, you know, you will still be allowed to see women cooking in the kitchen and that's a stereotype that will be allowed. But what won't be allowed is if it, um, positions a woman, um, as unfavorable due to her gender. Now, uh, Viv, I know you're, you, you always have strong views when it comes to the ultra tune ads. Well, this will be interesting to see how it plays out. Because I know that the AANA have already made changes where previously an ad could only get in trouble if it was exploitative and degrading, whereas now it can be exploitative or it can be degrading. You don't have to show that it was both to be we've problematic. We've made so much progress, haven't we? We have, <laughs> and or look look at how much we've changed. Uh, Altitune, I would argue, does rely on negative stereotypes of silly helpless bimbo women they have been called out on it many many times but you know is this just posturing from the double ana will it will it lead to any actual change there, there is still so much gender stereotyping in advertising i have a british friend who came here who said it's hilarious how much australian advertising relies on white women in the kitchen to sell kitchen products and cleaning products and that massive stereotype and as you alluded to Dopey dads. Mm. Uh, 
I remember covering a, a, a ruling, I think it, it would have come out very late last year, because I remember doing it during the Christmas break, on, I think it was a WA company where they actually were taken to task on the dumb husband stereotype. It was a, it was a woman who sort of, you know, was, was, was ringing a pest controller and asking if they dealt with husbands, and they decided that was vilifying husbands, and they, they suggested they were moving in that direction. I mean, if you look at the four of the top 10 most complained about ads since the Ad Standards Board launched, um, four of them are for um, degrading women or um, using gender stereotypes. You've got Ashley Madison, two ultra tunes. You also have a Nando's ad. And even yesterday I wrote up a ruling. Ah, this was the Nando stripper ad, was it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, So that was, I think, the seventh most um, complained about ad with 359 complaints. But... I even I wrote up an ad yesterday for a real estate company selling a, a big mansion and they uh, the Ad Standards Board said that they basically treated women uh, the same way you would herd cattle um, and, you know, they had their ad banned. But, yeah, w- what difference exactly is this code going to make? Now, Viv, I know as an expert on real estate, you'd say normally that industry has very high moral standards. <laughs> it's no worse than ads you see for other things, though. I mean, the worst offender that I've seen lately is is Ultratune, and, and they would argue that it sells cars, so it doesn't matter. So I'm sure this company would argue we're selling houses, so it doesn't matter. But I don't think you can blame the real estate industry here for the raft of problems that advertising has with how we portray women and and how we use women's sexuality and sex to sell products. We've also had quite a few commenters on our article already pointing out that it's not just men or women. What about transgendered people? We're thinking about things in quite a segmented way, which is almost old school. Like we've moved on from this idea of men and women a little bit and it needs to go further than what, what it's saying it will do. Let's not stereotype people. Exactly. Well, if it means no more as with dumb husbands, then I'm all for it. Moving on, and a few months on, the true impact of Facebook's newsfeed changes are beginning to kick in. Uh, Josie, this one is kind of in your wheelhouse as our... Um, uh, I guess, champion of our social media channels. Yes. Um, so this week, our media writer, Zoe Samiot, who sadly isn't here today, has been busy speaking to Australia's publishers about the impact of Facebook shift to prioritise family and friends over news and what effect that has had on their overall reach. It's been four months since Zuckerberg announced the changes um, and using data from CrowdTangle, Zoe was able to see drops in interactions across the board, which is including things like reactions, comments, shares, video views, post count and page likes. So BuzzFeed Australia was down from 1.8 million interactions in November to 672,000 in April. Which would be a fall of almost two thirds. Yeah. Um, Now, I won't go and list every single publisher because there was quite a few of them in the piece. But for example, Pedestrian fell from 589,000 to 203,000. So again, nearly two thirds. Some quick maths there, Tim. Um, Welcome to maths with Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Daily Mail Australia fell from 1.3 million to 860,000. Tim, the maths. (laughs) Now, it wasn't all doom and gloom. There are a few publishers whose interactions did increase. Um, Pages like Vice Australia, perhaps due to their video content, um, they did increase. Um, But yeah, after speaking to the publishers, Zoe found that pretty much all of the reach was down. 
And what have you found? Because you you look at our own analytics. Mm-hmm. What's Mumbrella's experience? We have also been? found a similar experience on Mumbrella. So compared to last year, we're down about 45%. This is on, on Facebook traffic, yeah, so that's, not, not overall traffic. No, no, no. I should stress. <laughs> our, our overall traffic is actually up, but we're kind of lucky in that we don't rely on Facebook too much for traffic. But sites like pedestrian junkie they get a lot of their traffic through facebook so it is quite a big deal for them and josie what do we mean when we say interactions so it's all those things that i listed um it's likes it's shares it's comments it's all a little bit confusing because they changed the way that they um track these things at the same time as they change their algorithm changes and facebook did speak to us about that and wanted to make that clear that they had made a lot of changes in the way that they track things around this time so it is very difficult once you start crunching the numbers to truly get a clear picture of what's going on but one thing that zoe did see was that um, publishers who had seen a drop in engagement did still see an increase in traffic in some cases and of course one of the reasons that this is all relevant is the ACCC are currently uh, investigating the impact of Facebook and Google on, on publishers. I um yes. I went and gave my evidence to the inquiry yesterday. How did was, that uh, go? It was it was fun. It was a very formal experience. So sort of myself and our CEO Martin, you know, we we put on jackets and rocked up at the ACCC's room where we were in a a, a big boardroom with the the two of us and then one member of the ACCC staff and then we were kind of video conferenced in with Canberra and Melbourne I think the other people were in where they they asked us lots of questions about uh about our business model and you know how we use Facebook and how we you know observe Facebook in the market and stuff and it was it was a right old grilling you know it went for an hour and it went very quickly and you know I kind of uh yeah, I was I was quite drained by the end of it actually. So um <laughs> So what do you want to see from the ACCC inquiry? Well, look, I must admit, I you know, I I've never seen the point of the inquiry in the first place because certainly it feels to me like, you know, these are big global companies which I'm not sure that the ACCC can really make any recommendation which will have an actual impact on an outcome. So it felt very much like a political thing. You know, Facebook and Google have a lot of critics from the, the traditional media side of things who the um, the government would prefer to have as their friends. And it certainly felt that one of the purposes of this inquiry was um, as a nod towards their friends in the traditional media. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit unsure that in reality it will, it will actually achieve very much to be quite honest. Although I'm sure the report will be very interesting to read at the end. And it's also worth mentioning that we'll be chatting a little bit more uh, in the podcast later on with the team from Vice about their algorithmic experiences. Now, Victoria Bitter's cricket sponsorship gamble seems to have paid off. Um, Viv, you were you were in Melbourne this week to tackle this one. Yes. So on Wednesday, I rose at 4am to fly down to Melbourne, which as anyone who has even so much as glanced in my direction would know is a big ask, not being a morning person. I can't believe they didn't fly you down the night before. Well, I went to watch the Gruen taping the night before, so it was a problem of my own making. You're such a busy media maven. (laughs) So I went down to Think TV's Think Tank in Melbourne uh, on Wednesday and Richard Oppie, the VP of Marketing for APAC South at Carlton and United Breweries, which is behind the likes of Victoria Bitter, Melbourne Bitter and various other beer brands, basically said that ending their 20-year relationship with Cricket Australia 
has paid off. This decision was made well before the ball tampering scandal, which uh, Richard called fortuitous timing. So they weren't caught up in it? No, so it was well before that. The decision was about a year before the ball tampering scandal, but he just said that it really freed them up. They were too tied to Cricket Australia's IP and the requirements around that. And instead, they they got to have more choice, they have more freedom, and they could pour that money into their Corona brand over the summer. And they said doing that with different media spending has actually really given them an uplift as opposed to being associated with Cricket Australia as the sort of, you know, you would have seen all the VB logos at the grounds and on the players for the past 20 years. And they reckon that more traditional advertising with Corona paid off for them. And does that uh, offer any wider signals about, you know, the, 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 all of the, the, the alcohol brands have always been big, big sponsors of sport generally. Do you see it as offering a wider signal about sports sponsorship? Well, when CUB pulled out, uh, rival Lion got involved with their 4X beer, uh, but they sort of became the signage partner and the pourage partner, which meant that was the beer that was available at the grounds. It wasn't the same level of sponsorship that VB had had in the past. So there's definitely still money there, but but it is a signal to have someone as prominent as Richard saying, pulling this money away has paid off and putting it into a different product away from this sport, away from all of the bureaucracy and all of the requirements of this. We still reached people, we built our brand and we connected with our consumers. Add into that mix the ball tampering scandal where we've had the likes of LG and Sanitarium with Wheat Bix ending their association with either the sport or the sporting body or the players. It's an interesting time for, for cricket sponsorship and I think they will struggle to sort of justify the, the funds that they're charging at this time. Speaking of CUB and, and sort of moving advertising strategies almost, they launched their Speakeasy Studio in-house um, digital agency on Wednesday, which which I think is quite uh, interesting and, and sort of from from speaking with some of the team at, at CUB, it seems they are moving a strategy away from sponsorships and from doing things like that to sort of go to market a lot faster and have a faster approach and a, and a, um, a closer connection with their consumers from a, a personal brand level. Well, when they launched Speakeasy, they did say it was just about enabling them to react quicker and connect with consumers more directly and when Richard was on stage on Wednesday at this Think TV event, he also talked about the decision to bring their programmatic in-house some time ago and he was saying that there's been a 30% uplift in their programmatic spending effectiveness. Now, I did do a story on that and yes, have... it was the VB News... It was the CUB, CUB News, News week. Week, It was. It? I know. I looked at how many CUB stories we had on our homepage and, and just thought it was quite funny, but... I guess they're doing interesting things and they're they're coming out and talking about it now. I have had some commenters ask, what do you mean by 30% increase in effectiveness in programmatic? That is something that Richard has claimed and I think it's something that we will have to sort of follow up on. It's quite a bold claim and he didn't really elaborate and I think it would be really interesting to look at what CUB is doing, why they're doing what they're doing and, and if it is paying off, why and how it's doing so. And just on the subject of cricket and ball tampering, do take a look on Guru and Transfer or these days Guru's uh, social channels. They've shared a wonderful KFC ad this week from uh, three or four years back featuring uh, David Warner 
now famous uh, uh, ball tampering conspirator David Warner talking about how he grew up in his backyard learning how to make a ball spin using tape, which uh, suddenly seems totes appropes. We had a concrete backyard, so there wasn't much movement off the wicket. So I had to try and work something out, and that was by taping half the ball and uh, trying to get the ball up there and swinging it. So, um, yeah, do take a look at that one. Now, that about wraps up today's news chat. Thank you, guys. I'll let you get back to the news desk. Thanks, Thanks Jim. So joining us today on the Mumbrella cast, we have two of perhaps the best dressed people in publishing i do have to say we have alice kimberley head of strategy and insights at vice australia and mikey slonim director and publisher at vice australia hello if you could see us now we are we are melbourne and sydney i mean like dark black and blues and alice is in the brightest colors you can possibly imagine As always. pinks and pastels and a lot of leopard without the earrings this time though i was wearing banana earrings but they were cheap. <laughs> Uh, also in the studio with us, you will have just heard her voice. We've got Zoe Samios, Mumbrella's media reporter. Who's also very well dressed. We're all very well dressed. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, guys. No worries. Uh, now, when most people think of vice, I'm sure the things that pop into their mind are things like drugs, sex, maybe being a little bit too cool for school. I can see your faces. <laughs> Is that fair? Um, or are you trying to maybe expand on that vision of vice a little bit i think if the year was 2005 maybe that's fair but <laughs> god it's if i if i know what's going on outside it's 2018 right now and you know i think i think it's very fair to say that's changed okay a lot i think the brand has evolved mm-hmm. and and grown up over that that time i've, I've been with vice for 15 years um, which is pretty wild brought it out to Australia in 2003, having met the guys in 1999 back then. So I've, I've been there for the journey and I've seen it, 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 it transform. And, you know, it, it's transformed because, you know, A, we, we had to, but B, because it was incumbent on us. And I think a lot of the transformation started happening in the mid-2000s mid when we were kind of looking out into the world and looking at all the terrible things going on. Um, and then no one else, no one was talking about them. And we kind of realized that we have this voice and a platform um, and the eyes and ears and attention of young people around the world. And it's, it's kind of on us to stop just talking about sex and drugs and music and, well, great and g- denim <laughs> and, and fashion and what we're wearing. Um, I think we've got a unique perspective on the world. It's not young people trying to be adults or uh, affecting the pretensions of being a news reporter. It's a young person just telling people what they care about, uh, and that's really unique. Uh, we have this phrase, immersionism, so we're immersive. Go into that world and then make you as a viewer feel like you're part of it. Um, so whether that's meeting Vic the Croc Lady in Melbourne recently, <laughs> which went completely gangbusters and you really mm. did feel like you were her neighbour in that living room as the croc jumped out of her pool. <laughs> Me. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. You've got to experience that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. I think when you kind of talk about hipsterdom, that was potentially what defined hipsterdom was this judgment, a kind of sardonic gaze on the world, um, do's and don'ts being a perfect example. Um, that bit of vice doesn't exist anymore. We've quite literally removed do's and don'ts um, from uh, the publication and in its place, 
uh, we've just got this constant fascination mm. uh, and and endless kind of questions, uh, which makes it very different, I think, from a lot of other news. Okay. And was that sort of in the front of your mind as you brought the publication to Australia? Is that a conscious effort? Conscious yeah, effort? Look, look, I remember picking up the magazine for the first time and just opening it. It was like a different language. It was like a different world. I'd never seen anything like it. I was like, whoa. And it really blew my mind the way they talked and what they were covering. There were these wild, crazy stories that you just didn't see anywhere else and certainly not in the Australian uh, media landscape. And it's funny, I, I used to... I used to A play in a Jewish punk band called Yidcore. <laughs> we were hardcore Yids. So that's how I actually met the guys in the first place, was being on tour in New York. Uh, Where's the documentary on that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> funnily enough, someone's paper was pitching that to me. You didn't say Fortunately, yes? I said no. Um, but my the, the other hat I wore was, was in advertising and in strategy and I saw what was going on with, with Vice and how interesting it was and how they just tapped into this just just this culture and that was just at the centre of it all. I actually went to go and shoot a documentary about them and I bought my little camcorder and I sat down there with Eddie Moretti, who's now, you know, two IC in the company. I talked to them about uh, the brand and the business and, you know, I was, my intent was to come back here and use that to explore and sort of sell my wares and strategy but then realize much better idea is actually launching uh the brand out out here because there was literally such a gap in screaming gap in the market for something like that yeah you do a lot of if i think about i think the most recent thing that comes to mind is explanations mm. which um was in the newsletter that I curate every week um, this week. But obviously you do a lot of little things like that and mini-series in that. What's mm. the sort of impact that that has for brands? What are they sort of looking for when they when they create these stories? Because I feel like they're little snippets and they're really great, but then I don't know what comes of any of it. A lot of people, when they're going into the brand and content space, the starting point is still my product mm. or my brand. Like, what's my brand truth? And that's good. It's cool. It plays a role. But really how we approach it is got to start with the audience. And what they care about, mm. what they're interested in, and what you can add value as a brand uh, to that. We do have this this saying, um, which almost like a plaque on the wall, which which is you know if you don't have something to say as a brand, then you're probably just a product. Um, and you know we we do firmly believe that brands have a you know right and role, legitimate role to play in the cultural space. But you got to add something. So I think you find a lot of brands also going in there and just kind of doing what everyone else is doing because that's the way it's done and it just doesn't scratch the size a lot of brands are used to working with their agencies mm. in a way that they probably have slightly more control than mm. they would with a publisher who has total control of their message yeah look I, I would say we have some reasonably spirited and lively discussions with with our you know partners which is great which is, is how it should be you know i think i think we I've been talking about about this, you know, we, we work with a couple of different types of buckets of brands, if you will, at like the obvious ones, the sort of challenger brands who know that they need to punch above their weight and do something interesting and it's sort of natural for them and a lot of the work we do is with them. Uh, but I think the other um, bucket of, of brands we work with is, is the old, is incumbents, big mass brands. And I think why they come to us is because they, they want to, do something different. They know they need to do something different to actually get the attention of, of young people. And they want to be pushed a bit outside of their comfort zone, which is, which is good. And that's, that's when we work really well 
with partners when there's that recognition that, okay, they, they do need to feel a bit uncomfortable. So I think like, like half the battle is, is not about the brand or the agency and the partner. It's just having a good person at the other mm-hmm. end who trusts us and gets it and wants to do something interesting and knows they've got to push it mm-hmm. um, to get people's attention these days. No, we can't talk about going viral without talking about Facebook. Mm. And I know that there was a lot of news about the algorithm changes. I feel like Cambridge Analytica might have slightly overshadowed that, but I'd kind of like to talk about the newsfeed changes. And have you noticed a change? Have you been able to track a specific change from the date that they made those changes? Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, Facebook is obviously one of our platforms. I think, you know, we we talk a lot about, you know, being a brand of a thousand front doors. There's so many ways that you can come in and interact with our brand or know about our brand. Some people just know us from our Snapchat channel or from the TV channel or as a YouTube thing or as the cool events or screens that they go to. And Facebook's obviously part, an important part of that mix. You know, I will say straight up, we saw a dip uh, to, to, to start with, but now we're going well. Um, mm. we're, we're flying in front. We've had a great couple of months, um, particularly the video uh, videos that we're putting on there are smashing it. Like we're putting videos up and they're going past a million in the matter mm-hmm. of, of, of days on a, on a, on a local level. We're seeing really good engagement and, um, it's, it's going well, to be honest. And I think, I think maybe I, I can't talk for the algorithm. It's probably settled itself down and it's, uh, you know, it's rewarding storytelling that I think plays to our strengths with his stuff that you can't get anywhere else, stuff that things you're actually going to talk about or comment or tag a friend and engage with and do something with. And we're seeing the fruits of that, to be honest. Our fans are growing. Um, I think we put on something like 14,000 fans in the last so it has an impact m- uh, month. No, it's mm-hmm. growing. Um, I can sh- show you a screen grab of, of an interesting <laughs> chart in after after this. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, like we're, 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 <laughs> did you did you think about shifting your strategy when you heard that? Did you think perhaps video might be the way forward a little bit more than articles, or did you think maybe content that stays on Facebook might be part of your strategy a little bit more? Maybe that's on for you, Alice. <laughs> I mean, we've always been a video mm. company, though. Mm. Like, that's, I mean, that's the, mm. the cute thing, uh, I mm. guess, is uh, this narrative around, oh, everyone's shifting to video. It's like, well, that was us from day one. Like, the Vice Foundation story is mm. a great one mm. and told often but worth repeating, uh, which is, you know, this little punk magazine uh, started by two guys pretty much on the dole. Uh, and we were going to all these crazy places and Spike Jones, our creative director, said, you guys bring a camera, right, to all these places. And we're like, Oh, yeah, 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 of course we are, and went out the next day and, and bought a video camera. This is pre-YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, created VBS, Vice Broadcasting System, started uploading online video, and then when YouTube launched, we were a foundation launch partner of YouTube. So that has always been our core. Speaking of video, obviously you have mm. SBS Viceland mm. as well. Mm. How is that going? Is that meeting your expectations? Is there more to be done? Yeah, look, look you know, people often ask us why. Why TV? Why did you get into TV? Like the reality, you know, our mission, if you like, is to be everywhere young people are. And there's a lot of young people still on television, right? And um, we want to get our content seen by as many people as, as, as possible. SBS is a fantastic, natural, obvious partner here in terms of shared sensibilities and the like. And very excited to be on, on, on free to wear uh, as well. And it's going well. Look, the, 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 this year has been, has been great. You know, first few months, uh, three months of the year of seeing growth 
um, year on year, which is which is really good to see. And, you know that bucks really the what what the industry's seeing um, from a brand perspective. It's fantastic. Um, you know our, our respective parents know what we do now, right? That's <laughs> we always say that to our young staffers. Um, you know it's been wonderful. You know from our point of view for, for, for the brand in terms of obviously you've got a lot of different platforms um you do a lot of different work where is your main source of revenue coming in how is this all being funded or oh, i've just got my 300 pen. by 250 so it's just <laughs> that's just emrex that's all we about 99 percent emrex no yeah look again you know i think one of the cores to vice's trajectory has been you know content on the one hand, like just hell bent on making the most incredible content, telling the most incredible stories possible. The other side of it has been being really innovative in terms of how we partner with brands and partner with just all walks of life um, to make money, like being really, really smart and switched on and progressive in that. So we've, we've, you know, obviously diversified our revenue stream. We've got, you know, obviously display is still an important part of the business. We do a lot of content alignment with with brands brand content if you will we do a lot of events we have virtue which is our agency services where we do consulting jobs research jobs and production uh jobs we have the licensing and ip part to the (laughs) business um so we're we're quite innovative in terms of how that spread looks like we've just been experimenting with um, ticketed events for the first time here we did um, a, a partnership with melbourne food and wine festival uh, about a month ago, we, we launched Club Munchies, um, mm-hmm. which is Munchies being our f- food channel. Uh, we took over a bar in the city, the Spleen Bar, for nine nights and did a pop-up restaurant and different one of our chefs came in for each night and hosted a night, put on a special dinner and talked people through that. We had special DJs aligned with that and we sold tickets and it did, did really well. And I think well, that augurs well for a whole new sort of revenue stream that we're starting to explore. Not locally, not you guys. There was obviously problems last year in the US with sexual harassment, which mm. I am very interested to see how that impacted here, if at all, and how you kind of, if it did, how you kind of challenged that perception and, and talked everyone through here. Because, I mean, you are part of a big company group, mm. but mm-hmm. you're a very separate business, I would guess, mm. um, to the UK or the US. Yeah, look, look from, a, from a local level, culture's always been really important to us and just having a really good, workplace and having fantastic human beings um, in the fold and really being like a, a, a family. And we've got a lot of people who have been with us for a long time. Um, Wendy uh, was an intern and now she's our head of editorial. Um, ben, and she's been with us for something like 10 years. Um, Jamie as well, our, one of our sales directors, has been with us for, for 10 years. I've got a lot, lot of long service leave to pay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're very focused on, on making sure we've got a great culture and a great, great workplace and doing interesting things. We've got a karaoke night tomorrow night uh, and food trucks. Apparently, I did read a story saying that food trucks are on the nose, apparently, according that to the aid. Um, but sure yeah, not. yeah. So there wasn't too much backlash from your audience at all here? Were they just – No. I mean, you, you get we get really caught up in it naturally because our job is news. So we're across everything that's happening all the time. But I'm guessing when big things like that are happening overseas, maybe not everyone is aware of it as yeah, look, we are. Yeah, that's – yeah, as an, you know, from an audience perspective, they're, they're interested in our content and our stories that we're telling and having that available to them and talking about it. Yeah. 
That's good. Well, if we take a step away from Vice for a second, we talk about the wider publishing industry. There's so many different issues we can talk about or I like to talk about all the time. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing the industry at the moment? Look, there's never been so much content Mm -hmm. uh, um, out there and so much noise and so many things battling for the attention, particularly of, of young people, maybe over 60s. As well, I note that we are up in that category for the award category to, for um, against starts at sixty. You are starts yeah. at sixty. I think Cricket Australia, you guys, yes. Buzzfeed, pe- uh, pedestrian, Good and memory, punky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had to go. remember them all yesterday. <laughs> but, but, but particularly in our space, you know, in that in that in that youth space, there's just so many things are there, and I'm not just talking about you know publishers, media brands. It's just everything in between, from mm. movies and SVOD and video games and music and, you know, event, like everything. Like there's just, there's only so much time. I think we've got this chart that we use, which shows the brain of a, of a young person and what a 24 hour clock might be. And it's actually when you add up all the things that occupy their brains from entertainment through to sleep and work and studying, it actually comes to something like 32 and a half hours that they're trying to cram into <laughs> 24 hours because they're multitasking. They're on their phones at the same time. So I, I think that the, the challenge is, Probably having a brand that means something to people and and means something when a piece of content comes out there or when they go into a new space that the brand can carry that content. Because I think, you know, a few years ago, you had that sort of steady stream of these brands that just kind of made those videos or wrote those articles that were just this viral thing. But if you ask people to link that back to the brand from whence they came, there was probably a struggle there. So mm-hmm. I think brand is 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 a really key, I guess, challenge but opportunity um, for, for digital publishers. That's really what uh, when HuffPost sort of scaled back, mm. I think there's only one person working there now, um, kind of more like a bureau kind of thing that they've got going. But that was a really big point that was made to me was they didn't stand for anything mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Everyone else even the Daily Mail has a point of difference and they were just kind of, you know, all bundled up in doing a little bit of what everyone was doing, not actually doing anything that was different or new. And Mm. you ultimately, well, it showed you can't survive in in market. I mean, there were other things that came into play too, but Mm. that seems to be one of the big I think the news in news is really important. Like new news is what's going to get you remembered. Um, increasingly just commenting on what's already happening. I think we've been having discussions mm-hmm. recently. Uh, I came back from South by and was just fixated on uh, UI and, and voice-activated um, news and where is that going. Um, the power of brand in voice is really important. When I was talking mm. to the radio network starting to launch their news services, how am I going? There's so many different brands, especially Facebook's almost – become a problem in that way, I can just flick and mm. I might not be fully aware of what I'm clicking on. I mm. am much more mm. now, but there was a point where there was it was pretty much all news articles, a hundred things. How am I going to know when I no longer have a feed where I want to go mm. if I go to a hundred places? And that's where it's going to be really key. Mm. I think it's that emotional resonance. I think that's actually not talked about in news that much, which is you want to achieve a feeling mm. uh, when you go to a – a news brand, and I know we do that, and I think a lot just achieve functional information. Okay, 
Um, but you don't get that feeling. I think Jezebel back in the day did a really good job of that, kind of owned an emotional space um, and even BuzzFeed in a different way is kind of, I think, less so now. But, yeah, it was really delight um, at one point. And I think if you don't have that, that emotional core um, and it's a consistency, uh, you're going to struggle. Uh, and that emotional core is also quite empowering for staff. I mean, you read about the layoffs now at Fairfax and, if you don't have something holding your staff together, um, that's actually this is what we want our readership to feel, it's going to be pretty woeful in terms of what's happening um, within the wider mm. landscape, that call to action. Um, Feels like a lot of brands forget that. Though. A lot of publishing brands forget that ultimately the, the readers lost in the revenue and the KPIs and everything mm. that they've mm. got to do that ultimately you – you need to have a reader that wants to come to you and understand you and trust you. If you've got that, well, you're ultimately not going to exist in mm. uh, maybe mm. it might be one mm. year, it might be 10, 20, 30. Mm. Uh, we were talking about this the other day about a bunch of um, yeah young people and this massive um, tension, this need to be woke uh, and how everyone has this uh, important versus interesting matrix, especially among young people. Okay, that's really important to know that. Am I interested in it? No. And it's kind of like a pill you have to swallow. Mm. A lot of news at the moment is that once you're freed up not to have to just do the daily 10 a.m. briefing, you start getting into really interesting spaces. You, you start to explore fundamental questions. You get the rise of investigative journalism back. Uh, you get people leaving their desks and finding um, interesting stories going out again because I think a lot of journalism's gotten lazy um and i think that's come from pressures to cut costs mm. um but i think you'll see less journalists but the best of the best will succeed and then i also feel like journalism is getting democratized in a really like fascinating way like citizen journalists and people are mobilizing to bring issues to the fore and then mm. they rely on a journalist now to shape that narrative um, and, and to make sense of it for people because especially in politics, it's getting so complex. You need someone to distill the Panama Papers for you. Um, so I feel it's probably going to get more intellectual. I think it'll um, be more interesting. Yes. I'm hoping for more investigation. I love investigations and mm. um, the stuff that comes out off the back of months and months of hard work is just so much more fascinating than the things that you have to just read every single day and consume and mm. be across in bulletins and that. Um, I hope that it goes into a m much more interesting space. Thanks to Alice and Mikey for coming in to chat to us about all things Vice. Now, as we mentioned in our news roundup, our reporter Zoe Samios looked more closely at the effects that Facebook's algorithm changes have had for Australia's publishers. We've linked to her piece in this week's episode description if you want to take a look. And thank you also for subscribing to the Mumbrella Cast. We had nearly a thousand sign-ups over the last seven days, so we may just be onto something with the Mumbrella Cast's return. Do tell a friend. And that wraps things up for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. Toodle pip. Toodle pip.